For communion this morning, let us turn again in our Bibles to Colossians, the first chapter. You may recall that the communion service last month, we dealt with verses 15 through 18 of the first chapter of Colossians. And I told you that we would probably pick up the remainder of this section next communion, which is today. And so we will pick up where we left off in Daniel last week on this coming week, Lord willing. Pardon me. However, I think that it's necessary that we begin our reading with verse 15, chapter 1 of the book of Colossians, verse 15. Will you bow with me in prayer? O Lord God, we come with a sense of burden and concern because of the weight of eternity, because of the needs of souls that are sitting here this morning, others who will hear through recording, because of the need of our nation, because of the need of our church in this nation for reformation, renewal, and revival. And we ask, Father, that the work of the Holy Spirit will be so evident in our midst that we will love the truth, that we will love the Lord Jesus Christ revealed in Holy Scripture, that we would not deviate nor nor depart from this great trust that has been passed on to us by our fathers. And we pray that the word of the Lord today will indwell us richly and that the Spirit of God would be at work to convert and to continue to convert, to change, to grow the people of God according to that great grace which has been given us in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Will you stand with your copy of God's Word, Colossians chapter 1, beginning with verse 15. This is the Word of God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. 
Stephen Carnock, the Puritan, said, as Adam brought in the empire of death, so Christ brought in the empire of life. And indeed, this is true. And what a wonderful thing for us to remember that it is through the blood of the cross that we are reconciled to God. How good for us to dwell on this theme before coming to the table this morning. But we must begin where we left off last time, and that is with the deity of Christ. That's the first thing, the first point, the deity of Christ. You will remember when we looked at these verses that precede verse 19 last time that we saw that Christ was the firstborn over all creation. That is to say, he has dominion and sovereignty. Firstborn does not mean that he came into existence. He is God himself, the second person of the Trinity. But the law of primogenitor is being alluded to here. Just as the firstborn had supremacy, so Christ has dominion and sovereignty. Verse 17 tells us that he is pre-existent. He is the creator and sustainer of the universe. The universe is a Christocentric universe, verses 16 and 17. As one old writer put it, he is the power by means of which the universe becomes an ordered and regulated whole, with all its parts in the right places, and with all its antagonisms reconciled. He is the keystone of the arch, and without him the whole edifice would dissolve into constituent factors and perish irretrievably. In him all things consist, they hold together. He is the head of the church in all things preeminent, according to verse 18. And this can only be said of God, who but God could be preeminent in all things. And so in these prior verses, the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ is held high for us all to see. But also in verse 19, where we begin this morning, for in him, that is in Christ, all fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Fullness, the word pleroma, all of the divine attributes dwell. The verb means permanent abode. You see the verb used again in verse 9 of chapter 2. For in him, that is in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And so it is not temporary. It is not transitory. It means to inhabit. It means to dwell in. It means to live in. The fullness of the divine attributes were at home with him. Do you see that Jesus Christ is God incarnate? W.R. Nicholson said, in him then is the entire number, the plenitude, the perfection of the attributes and energies of deity. Nay, there is almost a tautology in the apostle's expression, the whole fullness or all the fullness, very nearly as if he had said the full fullness. Jesus Christ is the exhaustion of deity. How superlative is this statement of the incarnation of God. And so Paul, with his gifts and vocabulary and thought processes guided by the Holy Spirit, is saying precisely what John, with his vocabulary and his, uh, his gifts and, and abilities di directed by the Spirit of God, wrote in John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. And then in verse 14, 
And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That is what Paul is saying as well. Well, what is the connection here, the relationship between Christ's person and work? Well, you see how apparent it is. Jesus is God. Jesus is man. Two natures, one person. Man fell, and man must redeem But where is the man who can redeem? Where is the perfect man who could accomplish salvation? There is only one, and that is Jesus. But if he dies for sinners, how can the sufferings of a man be of such value to cover our sins and to reconcile us to God and redeem us? Well, if God the Son takes upon himself human nature, then his sufferings, his real human sufferings, are given infinite value. And that means that the sufferings of the Son of God are sufficient for the vilest sinner. No sinner may say, let me repeat it often, in light of who Jesus is and the value of his blood as the God-man, No sinner may say, my sins are too vile to be forgiven. God can forgive the vilest sins of the vilest sinner because of the infinite value of Jesus' blood. He can save you. He can redeem you. He can convert you. He can sanctify you. He can bring you all the way to heaven. No sinner may say, my sins are too great. No, in Christ all the fullness of the deity was pleased to dwell bodily, and therefore he can redeem the vilest sinner. Now I ask you, is this not, as we come to the table of the Lord this morning, is this not good news? That we are remembering what the Savior accomplished for us when he shed his blood on the cross and did for us what no man could do but the God-man. Well, this leads us to the next point. Christ's work of reconciliation. And Paul speaks in verse 20 in this way, verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So what is this work of reconciliation? Man by his fall lost communion with God. The whole creation as well fell when man fell. The need therefore is for reconciliation. And yes, it even includes the inanimate creation, fallen when man fell, longing, creaking toward the return of the Lord Jesus Christ according to the groaning of Romans chapter 8. And what is the scope of this work of reconciliation? Things animate and things inanimate, sinful man, but also the creation itself according to this verse and others. Hebrews 9.23 tells us that even heavenly things were included. Again, one old author, the blood of Christ reconciles the purity of heaven to the introduction there of such sinners as we have been, purifies the very purity of heaven from the slightest suspicion of complicity with our sin. Now notice the all things in verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Things animate and inanimate. But what does all mean? It does not mean universal salvation. Let us be clear about this. A mistaken interpretation of this passage. Does not Jesus, for example, in Matthew 25, 
say that the impenitent will go into everlasting punishment and the saved into everlasting life. And it certainly cannot mean fallen angels who are kept for the judgment of the great day, Jude 6. Let no one be deceived by any false hope here this morning that all will be saved or that there is some second opportunity after death. All will not be saved, and there is no second opportunity after death. The message to you is flee the wrath that is surely coming. The message to you is hurry in faith to the foot of the cross and embrace Jesus Christ as your Redeemer and Savior. What then does it mean that Christ reconciles all things, literally the all things? Obviously, it means all the things appointed for him to reconcile, he reconciled. A great thing indeed in heaven and on earth, enmity removed for the salvation of sinners and the restoration of this world, indeed the new creation that is to come. So what is the means of accomplishing this? Verse 20 tells you, did you see it? The blood of Christ. The blood of Christ. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, peace by the blood of Christ, the blood of his cross. Our peace is on the basis of the shed blood, once for all shed blood of Jesus. God and man are reconciled by his precious blood. It was not enough that the Son become incarnate. He must obey the law for us as our perfect mediator. Yes, but it was not enough that he become incarnate. The incarnate Son must shed his precious blood. The one in whom all fullness of the deity dwells is the one who must shed his precious blood. And there was no other way Reverently, I say it, God could not simply forgive without the shedding of the blood of Christ. He did and he could say, let there be light and there was light. But there is no simply speaking by divine fiat for the forgiveness of our sins. No, no, his justice must be satisfied. The blood must be shed. The second person of the Trinity who took on himself human nature and voluntarily went to the cross in order to reconcile the broken relationship between you and God, must shed his precious blood. The blood of Christ, as an old French writer said, is the grand miracle of God, the price of your liberty, the salvation and glory of the universe. Do you glory in the cross? And this once-for-all accomplishment that only he could do, the verb reconcile, and having made peace are both aorists, meaning that it happened at a definite moment when Christ shed his blood, the reconciliation and the objective peace were accomplished by Jesus. God was reconciled to us, making the way open for our heart reconciliation to God at our conversion. God laid on him our iniquities, as we read in Isaiah 53. The Lord crushed him, putting him to grief. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree, 1 Peter 2.24. He was punished in our stead. He was our propitiation, our wrath bearer in our place. And you cannot be saved unless that wrath has been born and justice has been satisfied by the shedding of the blood of the God-man.
It is done. It is accomplished. He can cry out from the cross, it is finished, because he did it, and you and I add nothing to it. But thirdly, what is our need of reconciliation? Why do we need reconciliation? And verse 21 answers that question for us. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by death. From God's side, the justice must be satisfied. From our side, the enmity, the hatred of our heart toward God must be removed from our sinful, sinful hearts. So Paul says, here is what you were. Here is why you need this work, this mediatorial work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Verse 21, we were once alienated. Those are awful words. No matter the accomplishments of a person, however he may think himself good, before trusting in Jesus Christ, the person is alienated from God. That's true of all of us because of original sin. As one old writer says, a condition of wretchedness, although a sinner himself may sometimes be oblivious of it, even as an insane mind is unconscious of insanity. Pay close attention to those words, just as an insane man may be oblivious to his insanity and indeed think that he is normal, so we sinners, before the work of the Holy Spirit to save us within our hearts, have no real knowledge of our alienation from God. But we are alienated from God. We need a reconciler. But also in verse 21, we were hostile in our mind or enemies in our minds. What does that mean? Well, it means that by nature, outside of Christ, despite what we may say, we were enemies, hostile to Christ, rebels, not simply passively, but actively rebellious, not only in our feelings and affections, but in our very thought lives. No matter how cleaned up civilization may appear to us, we just we just become more sophisticated in our rebellion. The apostle uses the word dianoia here. And you could translate it all through the mind. All through the mind. Hostile all through the mind. And so you'll study young people, Kant and Hegel and Dewey, but they're just more sophisticated approaches of rebellion all through the mind. But again, he adds to that, alienated, hostile in the mind, but also in verse 21, doing evil deeds. You say, wait a minute, I've not murdered anyone. You have in your heart. I've not murdered anyone. Well, did you rebel against your parents? Well, I've not committed adultery. You have in your heart. Well, I've not committed adultery. Well, did you gossip? Well, I've had a lot of money, and I've, I've given it to help the poor. Did you give it to the glory of God? Sometimes our evil deeds, we tend to think of those things that we might find in the gutter. But sometimes the evil deeds the Bible has in mind are the splendid sins, the things in which we gloat, the things in which, in which others may look and say, look at that fine, upstanding individual. 
Those things that we think are wonderful, but rather because they are not done to the glory of God, are vile. Do you suppose in making it singular, he doesn't say the mind, in your minds, but in the mind. Do you suppose in making it singular, Paul is just saying that though the manifestations of sin may differ, there is only one mind for all sinners, ultimately, nonetheless. Similarly, and more extensively, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Romans, the third chapter, the apostle unpacks this human sin and depravity even more. In this well-known passage, before he presents the cross, he says in verse 9 of chapter 3 of Romans, What then, are we Jews any better off? Not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, that is Gentiles, are under the power of sin, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And so the Apostle Paul in that passage, citing Old Testament references, especially from the Psalms, says this is what we are like by nature. I've told you before of the great revival that happened in the 19th century in Geneva when the students were no longer taught the great truths of the Bible in the seminary there, but a cold chill of Sassanianism and Unitarianism reigned. And Robert Haldane went there, and he was sitting on a park bench, and he met some students, and he invited them and other students from the seminary, every one of them lost and undone, ready to go into pulpits and preach nonsense, preach Unitarianism, preach everything contrary to the Word of God. He invited them to come to his apartments. He had a long table, and he put out Greek New Testaments and other books around, and they began to study together the book of Romans. They worked through the book of Romans together. They had never studied the Bible before. They were in a seminary, had never studied the Word of God before. And when they came to this chapter, Merle Dobinia, who later became the great author of the great work on the Protestant Reformation, Merle Dobinia looked at Haldane and he says, ah, now I see that doctrine in God's Word. Haldane then looked at him and says, yes, but do you see it in your heart? Now I ask you, You see that doctrine in God's Word. It's right here in Colossians. It's right there in Romans 3. But do you see your heart before God outside of Jesus Christ to be totally and completely in need of the reconciling work of Jesus Christ? Do you see it? May the Spirit of God enable you to see yourself for what you are if you are outside of Christ. Well, that's our need. Now, fourthly, the accomplishment and result of reconciliation the accomplishment and result in verse 22. 
He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. In his body of flesh by his death. Christ's deaths, Christ shed blood. It's already been stressed. But now look what at Paul's wording here. It's very striking. Did you notice it? Why not? Did, did he just not say by his death? Why stress the body and then again stress it with the word flesh? Why in chapter 2, verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, why does he stress this bodily aspect in chapter 2, verse 9, and in verse 22 of chapter 1? Well, apparently... It's because the heretics against whom he was writing, remember he's writing polemically in Colossians, said that it was not only, uh, only a denial of the deity of Christ, but a denial of his true humanity that they were after. They were compromising both. In other words, it seemed they denied the incarnation of our Lord. And Paul is stressing the incarnation of our Lord. Without this, there could be no death. There could be no shed blood. There could be no reconciliation for us sinners. And without this, we could not be saved from our sins. So Paul stresses the bodily, physical death, the real shed blood of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, he could not really bear our condemnation as our substitute in our place. But he did. He did go to the cross. He did, as our substitute, bear God's wrath and take our sins. He did accomplish our reconciliation. To what result? What is the end in view? Well, again, the second part of verse 22, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Those alienated with wicked minds and deeds now presented holy before God, before a holy God, in the presence of the holy God. As Nicholson said, the sinner for whom Christ died is invested to the eye of God with all the sacredness and the value of his substitutionary sufferings and with all the righteousness of which the sufferings were the expression. That you might be presented without blemish, judicially and morally on the judgment day. That you might be above reproach, ESV. The word actually clearly means without accusation, without any charge, unaccused or uncharged. It's a legal term. We who have been reconciled by Christ's blood will never, never be arraigned before the condemnatory justice of God. Never. Conditional clause in verse 23 might indicate that Paul mainly has the future in mind because of the justification that is now the possession of the believer by the imputed righteousness of Christ. We are able to sing, Bold shall I stand in thy great day, for who ought to my charge shall lay, fully absolved through these I am from sin and fear and guilt and shame. Can you say that from the heart? Can you sing that great line from that hymn? But what is the evidence of reconciliation? Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. 
Now, Paul is no Arminian saying that the work of Christ depends upon our supplementing it by good works. That's not what he means. But the apostle is saying there is only one foundation on which a sinner can build for eternity. And that is the hope of the gospel. He's saying precisely what Jesus does in Matthew 7 about building on the foundation which cannot be removed by the storm. And Paul is writing, expecting that those to whom he writes, having truly trusted in Christ, will faithfully adhere to the gospel. There's a Greek issue here. There's a particle introducing a conditional clause, and it could be translated assuming that. So Paul is not expressing doubt, but rather confidence. One who truly is grounded in Christ will not move away from the hope of the gospel. How do you know that you're truly grounded in Christ? Well, there are many things to say here, but you don't move away from your only hope. Surely Paul means to contrast true faith with the false teachers who are not well grounded, have no true faith, and therefore move away from the hope of the gospel and are always looking for something else. So be sure of your foundation, my friend. The sinless Son of God who took the sins of sinners, be sure the superstructure of your life is built on the gospel of sovereign free grace. This is stable. This is firm. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Give yourself no rest until you can say, I am sure that I am building on this foundation by trusting in Christ alone for my redemption. So says Paul, keep your focus on the gospel which has been proclaimed to you, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. But what do we do with this text? How do we take this text? How do we live with this text in the days ahead? Well, let me just give you some things. First of all, believer, it should stir up your hearts to worship, to contemplate this great Son of God, the eternal Son of God, assuming flesh and going to a cross and shedding His blood. Do you see Him there in Gethsemane, sweating, as it were, drops of blood? Do you see Him? His back being flayed by the soldiers and the blood that is let Do you see him being nailed on a cross by faith? Do you see him as your reconciler? Do you recognize that shed blood is blood that must be shed in order that you may be redeemed? If you can hear these things, contemplate these things, come to this table this morning without worship in the heart. Oh, my friend, let us worship. Let us live for him. And that demands my all. It's totality thinking. Kingdom kingdom thinking is totality thinking. He doesn't say, give me some of your life, give me part of your life, give me a little of your life, give me most of your life. You can hold something back for yourself. No, you go where I want you to go, do what I want you to do, live as I want you to live. Increasingly, you grow in your understanding of the authoritarian, the loving, kind, gracious, authoritarian nature of grace. He owns you. You're bought with a price. You do not belong to yourself. Worship him. By the way, You gather here this morning, but worship him by how you live in the days ahead. But also by living this out in our homes with our husbands and wives and children and relationships. 
For surely, even though Paul does not stress it here, in other places he does stress the truth and reality of the fact that if I am now reconciled to God, if he is reconciled to me, if he is removed by the the punishment of Christ in my place, that which was in the way of fellowship with me, and he has removed enmity from my heart that I might fellowship with him, then surely I can learn to forgive those around me whom I fail and who fail me, because sinful human beings will fail. Surely I can learn to love my brothers and sisters in Christ. I can live a reconciled life. That's the key to your home and your marriage, you know? It's right here. It's the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. There are no 12-point steps or anything of that nature. It's the gospel that will transform your marriage. Living a reconciled life in your marriage comes from this cross of which we have read this morning. But also, if you are lost and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, there's only one foundation, as I have said, the only sure foundation, the finished work of Christ, His shed blood, the merit of Christ. You have no merit of your own. It is only the merit of Jesus Christ, and your conscience will be continually vexed until your heart is focused there on the merit of Jesus Christ alone. Only by trusting the Lord who bore our curse and humiliation shall we be saved and have assurance of it. With all my might, may the Holy Spirit, may His might accompany my words. I call upon the lost who are here this morning to forsake your sin, forsake yourself, to trust the only Savior of sinners who is Jesus Christ. There was a a young man who had trusted in Christ and who had fallen back, terribly fallen back. Having heard George Whitfield preach, he was convicted and he was having uh, tea with Lady Selina, the Countess of Huntington, that great evangelical uh, woman of the 18th century. And he was weeping and crying. He couldn't eat. He couldn't drink. And he said, I'm lost. I'm lost. I'm lost. And she said to him, I'm glad to hear it. And he said, no, you didn't hear me. I'm lost. I repeat, she said, I'm heartily glad to hear it. Contemplating her cruelty, he he said, "How, how can you say that you're glad to hear I'm lost? Oh, she said, because there's a verse in the Bible, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He said, you're right. He dried his tears, he trusted in Christ, was assured of his faith. He walked out and he fell dead and entered into eternity. Do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know that the Son of Man came to seek and to save lost sinners like us and continues to seek and save even as the Holy Spirit uses his word proclaimed this Sabbath morning. But then, people of God, let me also say this to you. Let us remember the false doctrine against which Paul writes happened so quickly, so quickly, entering into the church. This false doctrine against which he writes, you need also to beware of veering in the least toward that which denies the gospel or calls it into question. I've often myself gone to the second volume of Spurgeon's autobiography where he says this. He was speaking to students in his pastor's college. 
He said, I might not have had such an intense loathing of the new theology if I had not seen so much of its evil effects. I could tell you of a preacher of unbelief whom I have seen in my own vestry, utterly broken down, driven almost to despair, and having no rest for the sole of his foot until he came back to simple trust in the atoning sacrifice. If he were speaking to you, he would say, Cling to your faith, brethren. If you once throw away your shield, you will lay yourself open to imminent dangers and countless wounds, for nothing can protect you but the shield of faith. People of God, guard the trust. Keep the faith. Earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. And so I ask you as you come to the table this morning, do you love Jesus? Do you know of his love to you? And do you love him in return? Do you love him? And do you with exclusivity, a way in which you could love no other, do you love him? Do you love him who shed his blood that you might be reconciled to God? That is the good news of the gospel which we together remember as we come to the table of the Lord. Amen and amen.